Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Our context is this. In the first part of the chapter, first part of 1 Peter 1, first 12 verses, Peter talked about being born again to a living hope. And now in this section, he's going to exhort his readers and inform them that they are called to be holy. So we look, we see Peter looking forward to the future, living hope. He mentions hope a lot, and now he's going to talk about holiness in this section of Scripture. So we start now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that hope again. See, it's hope, hope, hope. A lot of hope in First Peter. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, the previous verse, previous verse says that the Old Testament prophets had to search the prophecies that they received, and angels desired to look into those secret things of redemption history. And therefore, since this stuff was so valuable and prophets wanted to look into it and angels wanted to look into it, therefore, you guys, with your minds ready for actions, you need to be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because you guys are all part of salvation history. God had all this planned out from the beginning. The prophets saw it. The prophets knew it. They didn't know all the details, but they knew it was coming. And so, hey, you need to be ready for action, to bring it out, to bring all these prophecies to pass. The action there, the Holman Christian Study Bible says your minds are ready for action. In the Greek is actually, it's an imperative. As the NIV translates it, prepare your minds for action. Much stronger with an imperative. I think NIV has a better translation there. The NIV Study Bible puts it this way, roll up your long flowing garments and be ready for physical action. In other words, get going, folks. Christianity is not just academic. It involves a lot of action, a lot of doing, a lot of deeds. Now, this imperative there, get your minds ready for action, is the first of a series of imperatives that ends only at chapter 5, verse 11. So all the way through the book is exhortation. Do this, do that, do this. Grace is going to be, your hope is going to be completely set on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are the options of the revelation of Jesus Christ? It could be the end of the world. The problem with that is, is how is that going to help Peter's readers any, unless... Peter thought the end of the world was coming very shortly, which I don't think he did. If he, if he was saying that, then he was giving false advice to his readers, and I don't think an inspired apostle to do that. So 8070 is the reasonable conclusion here. He's talking about the grace that's going to be brought to you because these persecuting apostate rabbinic Jews will no longer be harassing you, and you're going to be free from their confiscations of your property. You're going to be free from them throwing you into jail. Adam Clark agrees with me on that. He says this, quote, But if the apostle alludes here to the approaching revelation of Christ to inflict judgment on the Jews for their final rebellion and obstinacy, then the grace, benefit, may intend their preservation from the evils that were coming upon that people and their wonderful escape from Jerusalem at the time that the Roman armies came against it. Clark's talking about the escape to Pella when Cestus Gallus, the Roman general, pulled his troops back from the siege and the Christians and the zealots left the city and chased Gallus and then the Christians in the city were free to flee, and they fled to Pella, all of which was predicted by Jesus in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. So that's what's being talked about here. You're going to be free from this persecution at the revelation, the appearing, if you will, of Jesus Christ in judgment to judge Israel. First Peter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, 
But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Peter calls his readers obedient children. He might have been talking about children in general, but he could have been talking about the children of our Heavenly Father. He might have called them children because they were in the family of God. After all, Romans 8.15 says this, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Spirit of adoption. We're all adopted children of God, and so Peter is probably saying, You obedient adopted children of God, be obedient. Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. And, of course, that would be referring to their Judaism, their rabbinic Judaism, which Peter is inveighing against. Now, the Homer Christian Study Bible translates it this way. Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. The NIV has evil desires of your former ignorance. And the KGV has the lust of your former ignorance. Much better translation. It's a little bit more punch to it than just your desires. Because after all, desires can be good desires as well as bad desires. This is obviously bad desires of your former ignorance. Now, Gill says the former ignorance is not so much Judaism as is, is heathenism. I don't know why, because the Peter's writing to the Jews, the Jews of the dispersion. But Gill says, heathenism scarcely produced a God whose example was not the most abominable. Their greatest gods especially were paragons of impurity. None of their philosophers could propose the objects of their adoration as objects of imitation. I remember when I first started reading Greek mythology, I was really struck with that. I said, man, these gods are creeps. They're disgusting. A bunch of rapists and adulterers and thieves jealous, petty, some gods. That's ignorance, all right, the desires of a former ignorance, if he's referring to people who were formerly pagan. However, since he's writing to Jews, I think their former ignorance is probably rabbinic Phariseeism, which taught things such as don't spit on the ground because you cause a fur, and that means you've farmed, and therefore you've worked on the Sabbath, and therefore you should be stoned to death, and that kind of nonsense. Either way, compare that with the glories of being in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16. Well, I've just, I'm sorry, I just read verse 14. Now let me read verse 15 again. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Holy, of course, means set apart from the world and dedicated to God, or set apart from the world and consecrated to God. It's a very simple definition. It's equivalent to sanctified. Be sanctified, be holy is the same thing. Here is a good verse showing God the Father's holiness in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, first part of the verse. Your eyes, talking about God's eyes, are too pure to look on evil, and you, Yahweh, cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Can't even look at evil. Like Father, like sons. God's holy, we're supposed to be holy too. But is the one who called you is holy? The one who called you is God. He called you. He called you into his kingdom. He's holy, so you're to be holy too in all your conduct. Not just in your mind, but in your actions. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Where was it written? It's in Leviticus 11, verse 44. For I am Yahweh your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Consecrate, of course, means put yourself, dedicate yourself to God. And that's the definition of holy. Apart from, set apart from the world, dedicated to God. Be holy because I am holy. You must not defile yourselves by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground. Of course, that was just the Levitical way of showing your holiness. God set up all that, all those laws, a lot of those laws, and some of which I think are arbitrary, just to, to show a contrast between things that were not supposed to be done, just to, so that God could un, so that the people could understand the concept of separation. You don't do this, and you do this. Separate from the world, dedicate to God, and you get set up object lessons. 
I mean, there's nothing really intrinsically wrong with a worm. People eat earthworms, but a lot of those dietary laws, in my opinion, were just there to show, not for health reasons, but just to show that God says some things I want you to do and some things I don't want you to do. I want you to obey me in that. And that's what I define as holy. That which everybody else in the world is doing is not holy, it's profane, and that what I want you to what I want you to do is holy. Verse seventeen, first Peter one. And if you address as father the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. If you address as father, well of course they address God the Father is Father, and so the NIV translates that if as since, since you address the Father. Now that's a first-class conditional in the Greek, which technically is supposed to be translated if, because you assume as a matter of argument, as a rhetorical advice, that the if clause is true, but it's not necessarily true. But here it's obvious, if you address the Father as one, hypothetically, well, it's not too much hypothetical about it, is it? Of course they address God as one because they're Jews. And so the NIV helpfully translates it as since. So, since you address as father the one who judges impartially, God is an impartial God. The scriptures say that, Romans 2.11. There is no favoritism with God. James 2.1. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So God is not a, a, a partial God who shows favoritism, and likewise we Christians are not supposed to show favoritism. Show favoritism how? One group over another. Usually it's the rich over the poor or the Jews over the Gentiles or vice versa. One ethnic group over another ethnic group. Usually economic status. That's a big one that divides humanity. But God doesn't care. If you're poor and do something evil, he'll, he'll punish it. If you're rich and do something good, he'll reward it. If you're poor and do something good, he'll reward it. And if you're rich and do something evil, he'll take care of you. So, no matter who you are, God is impartial, which means... He's going to judge you rightly, so you better conduct yourselves in fear, and that means godly fear, reverential fear. It doesn't mean slavish fear, as James Fawcett and Brown point out. Now, conducting yourselves in fear, this is a common hour of reverence. Let's say reverence. The English word is a little bit ambiguous. Let's look at some scriptures that show how we're supposed to fear the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. And I really emphasize this now because people are taking God's name so much in vain. Blasphemy, profanity. I just heard a profanity the other day on a documentary that was so blasphemous, I was expecting the lightning to come strike that man dead. Fortunate for him, God overlooked it, but he should have. But, I mean, God, in his rights, could have toasted that guy with lightning for what he said. And everybody's doing that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Hey, we're supposed to reverence God. He's not some granddaddy up on a sofa up in the sky throwing Tootsie Roll Pops down to his doting grandchildren. That's not who God is. The fear of the Lord, reverence of the Lord, that doesn't mean we have to slavishly fear him like he's going to strike us dead because we're his friend now. We can walk with confidence access, with confident access into the throne room of grace. So you don't have fear that way, but you do have reverence for who he is. I mean, he made the universe. Maybe we ought to respect that. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16.6, wickedness is atoned for by loyalty and faithfulness, and one turns from evil by the fear of the Lord. You don't want to go out and commit evil because you know that God doesn't like that and he's going to punish it. This is a concept that the human race seems to have lost these days. We need to have this fear of God because God expects us to be holy. He said in verse 16, be holy as I am holy, therefore fear God. If you fear God, you will be holy. Now, how were the readers of Peter's letter to conduct themselves in fear and when? During the time of their temporary residence. Well, what does temporary residence mean? 
Well, it could be one of two things. One, it could be their temporary time on Earth, and that's okay. But it could be the time when they are aliens in a foreign land away from Israel. Remember in James 1.1, James starts his book, James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes of the dispersion, where they were temporary residents. They were not residents of Israel, but they were residents of other places. Also in First Peter, first verse of the book, Peter doesn't call these Jews, of the, he doesn't call them the dispersion, but he does call them temporary residents. To the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those are all regions of present-day Turkey. And so during that time that they are scattered and are temporary residents in foreign lands, conduct yourself with fear. The idea is be holy. Don't let the fact that you're in exile stop your desire or slow your desire to be holy and living in fear before the Lord, which I could imagine would be tempting to do. You say, well, God's abandoned me. I'm being persecuted and run out of my home so I can just forget God. No, don't do that. We go to verse 18, 1 Peter 1. For you know that you were, were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. The former ignorance, Peter called it before now, he says their empty way of life. He's got some strong words for the people that are wasting their time away on earth without God. Empty, empty, and ignorant. You're redeemed from that kind of life. Redeemed, of course, means to buy somebody out of slavery or to buy something out of slavery. For example, my guitar is enslaved to the pawn shop owner, and I want to get my guitar out of the slavery, so I pay the amount of the loan back plus interest back to the pawn shop owner, and he releases, he redeems. I redeem. I pay a ransom price. I pay the the price of the loan plus interest, pay the ransom price, and the pawn shop operator gives me my guitar back, and now my guitar player is out of hock, or as we, as we say, but what that means is it's out of slavery. It's free now, and I can take my guitar back. Same thing with slaves in the ancient world, and so this is the perfect metaphor to talk about Christians because we are enslaved to sin, and when Jesus pays the ransom price, his blood, we are released from slavery to sin, and we are free. Now, this idea of redemption is all through the scriptures. Now, I'm going to make a distinction here before I read these scriptures. Redemption is the act or the process of buying somebody out of slavery. The ransom is the price that you use in order to carry out redemption. The ransom is the price paid. The redemption is the, the act of freeing someone from slavery by paying a ransom. All right. So Ephesians 1.7 says this, We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through his blood. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Titus 2.14 He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. So we bought out of slavery, slavery to lawlessness and sin. Bought out of that. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. Talking about Jesus was slaughtered. And you, Jesus, redeemed people for God, redeemed people for God by your blood. The blood's the ransom price. The redemption is the act of freeing us from slavery. Colossians 1.14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 20.28, 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom is the redemption price, the price that's paid in order to get redeemed. Mark 10:45. for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom is the redemption price. Hebrews 9:15. therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant 
so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Redemption means freedom from. Freedom from what? From the transgressions, the sins, which sins, of course, bring slavery and death. We're free from that. We bought out of that by Christ's blood. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself a ransom for all. Jesus is the price. He gave himself his life. The redemption price is the ransom. This idea of paying a ransom in order to redeem something comes from the Old Testament, Exodus 21.30. If instead a ransom is demanded of him, he can pay a redemption price for his life in the full amount demanded from him. This is talking about somebody's life. Uh, which was legally owed because he let his ox gore somebody to death. And so the Mosaic law says, okay, we don't, you don't have to die. If you pay a ransom price, you're redeemed from death. You don't have to die. Exodus 13, 13, you must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flocked animal. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. And that came from Exodus because the firstborn of all the Hebrews were not killed when that judgment came upon Egypt. You remember Passover, the blood over the lentils, the firstborn survived. And so ever since then, in the Old Testament ritual, the priest, the, the children of Israel offered to the priest a, an animal in place of their firstborn son who should have died. And so the firstborn son is redeemed from the death that he deserved. So you see, that's a fundamental concept of Christianity is redemption and ransom. And, and so that's why I spent so much time going over it here. Peter says in verse 18, you were redeemed from your empty way of life and inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. Now, the examples I gave, like the guitar in the pawn shop, that was, you give, you give money, silver or gold, but there's not enough money, not enough silver, not enough gold in the world that equals the worth of a sinner who's supposed to die. You can't buy out, you can't redeem a sinner from the bonds of death, the slavery of death with money, because money's not valuable enough. But the blood of Jesus was valuable silver gold perishes it doesn't last what does last we go to verse 18 before i go to verse 18 actually verse 19 before i go to the next verse let me say here about who peter is referring to i refer i said he's most probably referring to jews some people say he's referring to former heathens former greek idolaters pagans the NIV study Bible says that's probably the case. Now, I don't know why, because the first verse, it was addressed to the dispersion, the temporary residence in the province of Asia, Anatolia. So I'll take their word for it. But this Old Testament language about redemption, that would really ring a bell with Jews who knew all about that, all what that meant. Now we go to verse 19. We're not redeemed by Perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Precious, i.e. more precious than silver or gold. Jameson Fawcett Brown says precious means of inestimable value. And why blood? Because there's life in the blood. So Christ gave his life for our life. Our life was owed to God. Jesus died. So he gave his life so that we don't have to give our life. Life for life. And blood represents life. So when we say the blood of Christ redeems us, we mean the life of Christ redeems us. Capital punishment is what we deserve, and Jesus suffered capital punishment. Capital punishment means executing the criminal, which means their blood flows. Now, Jesus' sacrifice was like that of a lamb without defect. That's, again, referring to the Old Testament sacrifices. They were a type of the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. And we can see that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old yeast, Paul says, so that you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. 
So Paul directly refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, that's the Old Testament lamb. It's a type, great symbol of the New Testament lamb of God. Old Testament lambs had to be sacrificed year on year on year because they didn't really take away sins. They were just symbolic of taking away sins. But Jesus is really going to take away sins when he dies. John Gill says a lamb is a perfect symbol for a sacrifice because a lamb is innocent, meek, endures suffering and death without struggle. Just like Jesus. He was innocent. He was meek. He went up onto the cross voluntarily. And he, he told Peter, uh-uh, don't slice off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not going to fight this. I'm going to go to my death on the cross. God told me to. Now, in the Old Testament, the lamb had to be without defect or blemish. This was a common provision in the law. Let me give you an example of that. Well, I don't have an example of the law, but I, I can read from Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So the sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was oft-reported, oft-repeated requirement of the Mosaic law. Your lambs and your bulls and your goats have got to be without blemish. Why? Because it has to be a perfect sacrifice. That is a type of Jesus who was the perfect sacrifice. He was without sin. The only perfect human being who ever lived. I was just teaching somebody on the Internet the other day, a Chinese Bible student, and it occurred to me, I said, listen, he's at the Last Supper, and he says, I confer a kingdom on you. And that's a verse that's not pointed out too much during the Last Supper, but he did. He said that, I, I'm, I'm conferring a kingdom on you. And I thought to myself, well, let's see now. Jesus, he's about to get executed. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a bodyguard. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any political clout. All the Sanhedrin is completely against him. He doesn't have a big fancy university degree to talk about what a great rabbi he was. He had nothing. And he just very calmly tells him, I'm going to confer a kingdom on you. I mean, even if you look at Jesus just from his humanity, how many human beings do you know would do something like that? He was incredible. And the reason he was, of course, was because he was God as well as man. We go now to verses 20 and 21, 1 Peter 1. He, Jesus, was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, Jesus is said to be chosen before the foundation of the world. He was chosen just like we were chosen. The Armenians say that chosen means foreknew. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. They say that before the world was created, God knew that it would be necessary for Jesus to redeem it. John Gill, actually, who's a Calvinist, also says it means foreknow, but, but folks, foreknow, when it's God foreknowing, is the same thing as him doing. If he foreknows that I'm going to be chosen, that's the same thing as him choosing me, because he knows the end from the beginning. So foreknowing is foredoing, if you will. So Augustinians, Calvinists, they say the word means chosen, generally, it means chosen, but it doesn't matter. Foreknow means chosen. To choose someone is to foreknow, is to foredo, if you will to preordain that you were going to be saved. And here, Jesus was preordained that he was going to be the Messiah and the Lamb of God. When was he chosen? Before the foundation of the world. Now, that phrase occurs often in the New Testament. I can give you several options, several examples of it in just a minute. But what does it mean, foundation of the world? Well, options. Option one is the creation of the planet. Before the planet was created, Jesus was chosen to be the Messiah I think that's probably what it means. But Adam Clark says another option is that Jesus was foreknown before the commencement of the Jewish state. 
because the rabbis a lot of times said the foundation of the world is when the Jews got started. The end of the world, the end of the ages, is when the Jewish state ends, before the Messiah comes. Well, maybe so, but I, th- I, t- I tend to take the traditional interpretation that Jesus was chosen before the world was even begun, that he would be our Redeemer and our Messiah. Now, he was chosen then, a long time ago, but he was revealed recently. He was revealed at the end of the times. When was Jesus revealed? Well, when he was incarnated, when he was crucified, when he was resurrected. Now, that time is said to be at the end of the times. He was revealed at the end of the times. Now, if you're like most modern American dispensationalist Christians, you you hear the word end of times, you think end of the world, tribulation, black helicopters, nuclear bombs, plagues, and so forth. But that's not what the word means here. It means end of the Jewish age, because that's when he was revealed at the end of the Jewish age. Then the Jewish age, let's say, ended in 87 when the Romans wiped out. That was approximately when Jesus was revealed. Now, to be a little bit more precise about the the end of the end of times, when I say it's the end of the Old Testament dispensation, it could be during the last few years of the Old Testament era, right at the tail end of it, or it could be right at the point when the Old Testament era ended, if you know when that is, let's say 8070, or could it be 8030 when Jesus died on the cross? That's the end of the ages. Or it could be right right after the point when the Old Testament era ended, and that could extend all the way from the first coming to the second coming. I prefer to take it simply at the point where the Old Testament era ended. That's the end of the age. That's when Jesus came. I, I also call it the pre-Messianic and the post-Messianic age. The end of the ages means at the end of the pre-Messianic age. But at any rate, it does not mean at the end of the world because Jesus was revealed at the end of the times. He's already been revealed. That's already happened. That was the first advent, not the second advent. Let me give some examples of where we see these, this phrase, foundation of the world. Matthew thirteen thirty five. So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Luke eleven fifty. So that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. Again, that foundation of the world could be the beginning of the Jewish state. Adam Clark says a lot of people do think that. But I think it's the beginning of the world. I could be wrong. Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, why would that be before the foundation of the Jewish state when he chose us? I think it means before he created the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Hebrews 4.3, For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest, and yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. Hebrews 9.26, Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages. Now let's look at some of the scriptures where end of the ages occur and the end of the ages is at the first advent not the second advent as the last days madness brigade would have us believe hebrews 1 2 in these last days he has spoken to us by his son well when was that well that was when jesus came the first time two thousand years ago in those last days acts two seventeen. that will be in the last days says god that i'll pour up my spirit on all humanity that is a prophecy of joel it was fulfilled in a.d 30, after Jesus had been resurrected, gone to heaven, 40 days later, poured out the Holy Spirit. That was the last days. That was near the first advent. It was not at the second advent. First John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. It is, not will be, but it is the last hour. You've heard Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrist have come. It's the past. John was writing in the first century. We know from this that it is the last hour. So you see, the last hour is not the end of the world. 
It's the end of the Jewish age. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happen to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul says the end of the ages came on him. When was Paul writing? 2,000 years ago, not at the end of the world. Hebrews 9.26, otherwise he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, but now he's appeared one time, when? At the end of the ages. He has appeared, that's when Jesus came the first time, not the second time. He appeared for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. When did Jesus sacrifice himself in order to remove sin? At the end of the ages, which was the first century, not the end of the world. All right, let's go back to 1 Peter 20 and 21. Read it again. 20, verse 20, He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of times for you, who through Him, through Jesus, are believers in God. Now that shows that if you want to believe in God, you better believe in Jesus. There's one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. God who raised Him, who raised Jesus from the dead. Now it's interesting about raising Jesus from the dead. You can find a scripture that says Jesus raised Himself from the dead. You can find a scripture like here where it's God raised Him from the dead. And you can also find scriptures that says the Holy Spirit raised Him from the dead. The Trinity all was involved in raising Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. The glory is the public manifestation of one's excellent characteristics or resurrected human being. That's pretty glorious. Gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It includes past, present, and future things. Hope is the evidence of things not seen in the future. So it's a subset of faith. And here Peter just runs them together. Our faith and hope are in God. We can't see God, but we have faith and hope in him. Now we go to verse 22, 1 Peter 1. By obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Having purified yourself, notice how purity is connected with brotherly love. Purified yourself for sincere love of the brothers, love one another, another earnestly from a pure heart. So the love of the brothers is connected with a pure heart. No shenanigans, no deception, no hypocrisy, no lack of candor, and so forth. No trying to use your brother to get ahead for yourself. Let's read some scriptures about loving the brethren. Romans 12:9. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. That's a sincere heart. A sincere love of the brothers, as Peter says here in verse 22. Paul says in Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy. If you love somebody sincerely, that means you're loving without hypocrisy. John 13, verse 34 and 35, I give you a new command to love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That reminds me of a Pentecostal church in South Africa made the news. Five people lying dead on the streets. Two factions in the church got mad at each other and opened fire with guns and killed five people. And I thought, yeah, how they love one another. Of course, I'm sure that was just institutional Christianity, there's no, uh-uh. I don't believe that people do something like that or Jesus' disciples. I think they're crazy fools is what they are. They're not disciples. But it was done in a Pentecostal church, a Christian church. We're supposed to love one another earnestly, not just perfunctorily, but earnestly. John Gill says of this, this is Christ's new commandment and the evidence of regeneration, a distinguishing badge of Christianity and without which all profession of religion is a vain and empty thing. First Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. That's the end of the sentence. So let's go back and pick up verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now verse 23, since you have been born again. Love one another from a pure heart since you have been born again. You can't love one another unless you've been born again. Now how were you born again? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Perishable seed would be like semen. It dies, or it could be like a seed of a plant 
it dies in the ground before it begins to grow. Some people say John Gilder dies. It means that. Perishable doesn't mean it dies in the ground before it grows. I'm not a botanist. I don't know how that works. But seeds do die in general. If it's human seed that's talking about, the Jewish rabbis used to call semen the filthy drop, as John Gill points out. Helpfully, the filthy drop. That's how human beings are born with a filthy drop. Christians are born again with the Holy Spirit of God. Well, excuse me, the living and enduring Word of God. Big difference. Now, it says, since we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What is that imperishable seed? Well, it sounds like it's the living and enduring Word of God because of the context, but some people say it could be the Holy Spirit. We've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, which is the Holy Spirit, through the living and enduring Word of God. In other words, the Word of God is the means, the agency, if you will, the agent of which uh, ministers the Holy Spirit to us, which brings the Holy Spirit to us. Either way, we're born again, either by the Holy Spirit or by the Word of God, or by both. And have you studied Bible says it's the Word of God because the context favors that? And I think it does. Doesn't matter. It's either it's both, not neither or, either or, but it both and. All right, word in the spirit by which we're born. Here's a scripture saying we're born again by the word of God. James one eighteen. He will to give us birth by the word of truth, so that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He gave us birth by the word of truth. Now being born again of the Holy Spirit, Titus three five. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Renewing means being made new again by the Holy Spirit. John 3, verses 3 through 5, Jesus answered and said to him, this is Nick, to Nicodemus, he's talking, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person once grown old be born again? Surely he cannot reenter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Commentators divide on what that water means. Is it the amniotic fluid? Is it baptismal water? We don't worry about that. The point is, is you've got to be born of the Spirit. So the Scripture clearly says, to summarize, that we as Christians are born both by the Word and by the Holy Spirit. Now the next question is, is what is that Word? Is it the spoken Word of God spoken by preachers or evangelists? Is it the Gospel that might spring forth from the written page? Or is it Jesus Himself? We're born again by the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word of God. I think it's the Word of God either spoken or written. I don't think Peter's going to make a distinction between the two. I don't think he's talking about Jesus here, but I don't know why. I can't prove it one way or the other. But at any rate, that's how we get born again. Now let's go to the last two verses of 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. Peter says this, For, colon, all flesh is like grass. He's quoting Isaiah here. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower wilts, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the word that has been proclaimed to you. Now, why does Peter say for? That just means because. He's contrasting the imperishable word that we were born again with in verse 23 with perishable flesh. He says, we need to be, basically what he's saying is, we look, we need, we need to be born. We, it was necessary for us to be born again by the imperishable word of God because all flesh is like grass. So if we're born with perishable seed, we're going to grow up perishable flesh like grass that dies. So that's what the four is there for. All flesh is like grass. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. Isaiah says this, A voice says, Cry out. I answer, What shall I cry out? All mankind is grass, and all their glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower wilts, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. This, of course, is a metaphor if you think about it. 
summer field grass everywhere and there's little flowers that pop up. And all of a sudden a hot wind from the desert comes blowing across that grass and the flowers don't stand much of a chance. Likewise, when the breath of the Lord blows upon a human being, he's going to dry up if, if, it's judge, if it's the breath of judgment. So then, Isaiah continues, the people is the grass. Though the grass withers and the flower wilts, the word of our God stands forever. Now, when it says all flesh is like grass, that, of course, means all flesh, all mankind in his mere earthly nature. It's not talking about spiritual man redeemed by God, of course. That's not what it means. He's not trying to say that us born-again Christians are like grass and our glory is going to fade away. He's talking about us and our human flesh. In contrast with that, the word of the Lord remains forever. Here's some scriptures backing that up. Isaiah 48, Isaiah 40, verse 8, which I just read. Though the grass withers and the flower wilts, the word of our God stands forever. The word of the Lord remains forever, Peter says. Psalm 119.89, your word, Lord, stands forever. It is firm as the heavens. That's nice to remember as political, politically or economically your world falls apart or relations, or medically or your relationship, your family falls apart. The word of God stands forever. Keep holding on to it. Don't ever let go. Peter ends chapter 1 at the end of verse 25 by saying this. This is the word that has been proclaimed to you. Proclaimed. Preached. Romans 10.8. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. That's the word that has been proclaimed to you. The gospel message is going to remain forever. It will not die because it is true. I just noticed something interesting. Romans 10.8. This is the word of faith that we preach. That's where the Copenhagenites, the name it and blame it, blab it and grab it, mark it and park it, Confess it and possess it, call it and haul it, scream it and redeem it. Folks, that's where they got that phrase from. All nasty heresies have got a nice phrase from the Bible to label themselves with. Gives them some kind of protection. But the word of faith that Paul preached is not, I believe God for a Rolex watch. I believe God for a $23 million mansion. No, the word of faith is the word that gets you born again. It's the imperishable word, and it's received by faith, by belief, by trust in the God that you cannot see. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished 1 Peter chapter 1. In our next audio, we'll take up chapter 2 of 1 Peter. We'll do the first 12 verses, which will cover the topic, a living stone and a holy people. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 